I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. At The Intercooler, we're proud to have JBR Capital on board as a podcast sponsor. They're a great fit for us because like The Intercooler, they're geared up around the car enthusiast. JBR Capital is the UK's only independent finance lender dedicated solely to high-end vehicle finance. That's all the company does. It means JBR Capital knows the car marketplace inside out and therefore is properly geared up to tailor finance quotes around the individual. There's no one-size-fits-all approach with JBR. In 2022, the company expects to surpass a billion pounds of lending in only its eighth year. The company can finance new cars, classic cars, sports cars, supercars, hypercars, any car, in fact, with a value greater than £25,000. The company's motto is fund your passion. And let's face it, without car finance, how many of us would really be able to afford to fund our passion for cars? So get in touch with JBR Capital before buying your next car. You'll find contact information in the description. And as ever, tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 108 of the Intercooler Podcast, one of those very rare episodes where me and Andrew are in the same room. Hello. We've got a good topic this week because this month, May 2022, we'll see BMW M celebrate its 50th anniversary actually that happens on the 24th of may so we're three and a bit weeks early but we're getting in there ahead of everybody else that's the key thing isn't yeah. it be first be first yeah well that's what you know it's, it's, the, it's the same month isn't it the actual date is within the month is neither here nor there um bmw m yeah there's do you know what there's so much to say which is a good thing because we have already done a bmw m podcast two years ago almost yes we discussed a handful of older M cars. Did we? Um, not I can't remember any of this. <laughs> it's fine, because I've listened back. I know exactly what we discussed. Um, and this is, a, this is a good test. I'm not trying to trip you up, but it'll be interesting to see if you, if you call it the same way now. In that podcast, we... Okay, so one thing, we discussed the origins of M, um, where it came from, why it happened, some yes. of the very early cars. Yes. The point of that episode was to declare the greatest BMW M car of all time. <laughs> Can you remember what we went with? No. But, okay, it, I'm guessing it will be one of three cars. It'll be okay. an M1, an E30 M3, or an E46. And I'm going to say... It is one of those three, isn't it? It is. E46. Correct. Yes. So we don't just make this up as we go along. <laughs> oh, so please. <laughs> yeah. E46 because obviously it is not as, if I can use this terrible word, iconic Yeah. as an E30 or as special as an M1. But the thing about M is that they are, 
they're just meant to be a little bit more accessible and I think with cars like M, the more people to get to experience them and enjoy them. Um, and the thing about the E46 is unlike the E30 M3, which is a homologation special, unlike the M1, which is obviously a mid-engine supercar, the E46 was made in unlimited quantities um, and was, was a standard production car. Um, and that, to me, is what M always should be about, um, you know, cars that anyone can go and buy. So that's why, and you, do you know, well done, because you said basically the same thing two years ago in that podcast. It's episode 14 for anyone who wants to go way back. Episode four, we're still Drive Nation then. Yeah. Um, so anyone who wants to go and listen to that, it's episode 14. And in that, we discuss some of the really important M cars, the M1, the E30 M3, E60 M5, E36 M3, M3 CSL, some of the more recent stuff as well, M2s. Um, but of course, that leaves a whole load of cars that we haven't mentioned. And of course, since then, there have been a number of new M cars that are worth a discussion. Um, and I certainly have driven at least two really important older M cars yeah. since then. So there's a whole lot that we can discuss. We can also have a little look into the future of BMW M, actually the very near future, yes. um, and have a think about what's that's coming. The, that's the car that they have produced specifically to celebrate their 50th anniversary. And it's... I'm looking forward to hearing your views on this. Yeah, and it's, we'll come to it later on. And it's the only the second M-specific model. After the M1. After the so M1. After the very first. And I... Yeah, I mean, when you look at um, BMW M's rival, so Audi Sport. Yeah. AMG. Yeah. They both have, and have had for a while, um, specific models. The yeah. R8, the AMG GT. Sure. Um, SLS. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's been a kind of glaring omission from BMW M, as far as I'm concerned, for a while, because they've all been adapted BMWs rather than something they've set out yes. to, to build and develop their own. But will it be worth the wait? Will it be worth the wait? <laughs> if you know what it is already, you're going to be shaking you may your already, head. <laughs> you may already have a view on this. <laughs> okay, let's leave that then until a little bit later on. Um, I, okay, let's just do a little bit of top-level sort of philosophical stuff about BMW M. I think... One of the reasons why it's still sort of so alluring and why it's worth setting aside an episode of the podcast to celebrate the 50th anniversary is because there's a sort of, um, there's an, an organic feel about BMW M. It arose out of a need to go race or a desire to go racing. Um, it wasn't a sort of cynical marketing exercise, or at least it no, didn't have that. It was like AMG. Yeah. Yeah, born to race. Born that's to where race. it came from. Yeah, absolutely. There's an authenticity about it, isn't yes. there? And yes. that's why, whenever there's a new one, particularly if it's M followed by the number three or the number five or something, yeah, expectations are up here, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And you know, for myself, I think that the M brand has been through a pretty poor patch in the not too distant future. I think it's getting better. Sorry, distant past. Sorry. Uh, I think it's getting better. Um, but what fascinates me about M cars is that throughout their history, it's almost like the 911. It, the, these cars subscribe to the less is more philosophy. When I think about, I mean, the M1's a very special case because they've never done another car like that and it was the first. But I think of the mainstream M cars. Um, it's always the 3 Series and the 5 Series and the 2 Series and the 1 Series. Um, not the 6 Series or the 8 Series or let alone the SUVs. Um, the cars that, yeah. to me, are the true M cars are, I guess today, the modern iterations of the original true M cars, the cars upon which provided the foundation upon which M was, you know, was built. Um, and those are the cars that I still... I don't really look at you know, an X6M or, or... I don't even look at those as M cars. I mean, they may have the badge, they may be very fast, but they're not in any... They're not M cars to me in any way that is that resonates at all. No. Um, so we'll be talking about that. Not even the, the big but lower stuff, M8s? They... Well, no, okay, an M8. An M8, yeah, an M8 is an M car. It's just not a particularly good M car. Because if you drive an M8... Well, I can't speak for you, but when I drove an M8... I just remember thinking of the M5, I could drive for 50 grand less 
which was no worse to drive in many ways was better because it was understated and you can actually use it you can stick your family in it you go on holiday and so on and so forth i just don't see the point i don't see what well yes of course i see in marketing terms and in terms of people who you know more interested in being seen than than driving i understand why they might find an appeal in their mate but to us as enthusiasts who love more than anything else cars that are fun to drive and cars that allow you to drive them you know, perhaps because you can use them in, as daily drivers or whatever uh, i just don't see what an m8 adds over over an m5 i'd just much rather have an m5 and the money in the bank yeah and it's a more understated unassuming kind of car exactly um okay so one of the ones that i really want to talk about in this episode and it's because last year i had a really good go in one of these cars yeah um i'd driven one before but only briefly and so I loved having a proper day out on some great roads in the one series M coupe, the one M great car, pugnacious little thing great almost car. looks square with those wide arches. Yeah. Not pretty, no. but it's, it Can I looks ask you a cool. question about it. Go on. Because I don't know the answer. I think I could probably work it out if I thought about it. Was it the first turbo M car? They did uh, an X six, maybe an X five as well. That was turbocharged. Okay, but the if we if we accept M that's car. right, if we accept that they're not really the first M car that dare speak its name. That's it, it was, and I was going to raise this with you because there was such a, a hoo ha at the time mm. about this M car that didn't have an M specific engine that had turbos. Yeah, um, and all of us were up in arms about it. We yeah. thought it was terrible and until we drove now, it. I can remember I drove it up in Scotland. I think they must have had a launch or something up there. And I drove it on, you know, on those wonderful Highland roads. They're probably a bit less policed than they are these days. In, I drove it in filthy weather. And I can just remember feeling so at home in it. And feeling that it was absolutely what I wanted a modern M car to be. And it, doesn't it just speak to the whole sort of less and more thing I was referring to yeah. earlier? Um so yeah well, did the turbos bother you not in the least because that engine is it is such a fantastic turbo installation it just feels like a large capacity straight six yeah. it sounds good okay it, okay it, what it doesn't do it doesn't rev like a you know an e46 no 3.2 straight six revs it's not going to go you know past eight grand or whatever but there's no lag it sounds great it is the most sort of innocuous installation um it just doesn't get in the way at all and of course you've got that rich deep swell of talk through the exactly which actually allows you to muck about with it in a way it's more difficult with a a normally aspirated car yeah and of course the the other big point and this matters much more 10 or 12 years down the line than it does when a car's brand new it's much more reliable you know some of these highly stressed bmw engines of old m engines of old they, one, in, one in particular. Yeah, the V10. <laughs> yeah. And I think the V8 as well is, is yeah. tricky. But Yeah, but they're related, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Yeah. And this is the the 1M's engine is much... It, it's probably more ordinary, actually, but it's more reliable because of it. And now it will just keep going, that thing. And again, it just comes down to, do you want that extra little bit on top yeah. and pay that price? Or do you just want something you can use? Um and, you know, I've said this a thousand times in this podcast. You know, to me, the amount of fun a car can provide is how enjoyable it is to drive times the number of times you feel inclined to drive it. And if you're always going to worry about it, and if you're not going to really rev it out because you're worried about, you know, whatever damage you might be doing to it, then it completely becomes completely self-defeating, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas, you know, a 1M with, what has it got, 340 horsepower, something like that? 335, yeah. Yeah, 335 um, from a 3 liter straight. I mean, 3 liter turbo straight. I mean, that's lazy, isn't it? That's not even trying. Yeah. That'll just go on forever. Well, if you want to, you can give it 400 horsepower. Oh, sure. And even that's not exactly stressing it. No. Um, no. And it's, you know, it's just a car that works, isn't it? And it's got those wonderful compact dimensions. Um, and it just feels agile and lithe. Proper driver's car. And that's all I want an M car to be. Whatever configuration it comes in, I just want it to be a proper driver's car. So when I drove this 1M last year, around this time actually last year, I did some digging into the background of the car. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's being developed right in the midst of the 2008 global economic crisis when none of us were sure what was going to happen, where budgets were frozen, no one was spending anything, 
Um, and yet a small team of people within BMW M started in their free time mucking about with the one series coupe and figuring out what they could do with it. Um, and there's a, there's this lovely story. It, I mean, it's, it was a proper skunk works project. Um, no official, uh, approval, but just a small enthusiastic team of people, engineers and designers who wanted to do it because they loved the idea mm-hmm. of, um, turning the smallest coupe in the BMW lineup into an M car, which just seems so right, doesn't it? Um, and they, because it wasn't an official product project, it had no official designation. Um, and at the time, lots of the guys working on the car, they enjoyed a type of rum called Pirate, P-Y-R-A-T, right. I think it is, yeah. And so they, they just codenamed it Pirate. And so they're working away on this thing in the shadows, in the background, um, and they were very clever about it. There was no budget, really, to do anything new, so they used what they had. And, of course, they had the E92 M3 that they could pilfer suspension components from. Yeah. They had this twin-turbo engine that they could borrow from elsewhere in the range. Um, and I think even the rear axle from, from the M3. So they did it in a very smart way. The point was to create a baby M car that was more affordable and would therefore appeal to a younger audience yeah. to bring new people into the M ecosystem. Yeah. And maybe they'll work their way up. Um, and they finally got approval for this project the board thought maybe they could sell two and a half thousand. Um, and so they, they set budgets at that level. In the end, it was 6,309. Um, and of course, we now have the M2s. Um, yeah. so it's, Which are doing it, the same job. Doing the same thing. It directly inspired those. And those are hugely popular cars. So actually, in hindsight, it's not a surprise, is it, that it was popular? A more affordable, smaller kind of M car. Yeah, but... <sighs> It's a well. I suppose it, you just you got to try and climb inside the head of the buyer, don't you? But you know, my problem with getting on the M ladder is I kind of feel that I'd be climbing down it, yeah, not up it. You know, I I, I come in with an M2, an M2 comp, and soon realise that I'd already got the best M car there yeah. is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There is, you know, there's, you know, I've, I've, I've said it before, an, an M2 comp is, um, to me, I certainly make it, they don't make it anymore, um, but of the modern M cars, it's the best. It just is, because it's accessible and it's affordable and, you know, an M3 or an M4 is faster, but it's not nicer to drive. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and I guess that's the problem with, with AMG. You know, no one would say that, you know, an A45S was the best AMG car, no. would they? Because no. um, it just isn't, because it hasn't got a 4-litre V8 in it. Um, but with M, it just seems to be the way it is with those cars. I mean, it's not, I mean, okay, fine. You know, there are exceptions. Yeah, an M5CS, I think, is an exceptional car. I think that's a really, we'll really that, cracking yeah. car. Um, but generally speaking... Um, they, they, they just haven't got to me in terms of driving pleasure and desirability that step up that you know that you kind of expect and certainly want it's true actually and there isn't a sort of natural halo model um, I mean the M5 CS great car but it's an M5 you know and this is it goes back to what we were talking about earlier there is no M specific model that you might long to own one day um, not yet or at least, least there will be <laughs> again we'll come to that um, yeah, 1M. So what's it like to drive? I, I mean, it's just a riot, isn't it? It's, it's one of those cars where you can sort of pick holes in how it does this. And when you turn it into a corner, I found it just a little bit tiptoey. So it doesn't sort of take a set and fill you with confidence the instant you turn it into a corner. So a more conventional clean sheet sports car that's not adapted from a hatchback like a Cayman, it's got its engine low, yeah. it's got the, the right suspension configuration, yeah. it's got the right weight distribution, all that stuff. And so it gives you that immediate feeling of it being a clean sheet sports car. The 1M doesn't quite do that, but it just doesn't matter with that car because you're having so much fun. It steers well, it's got a great front end. You can just play with the rear axle at will. Um, it's the right size relatively light it's just it's just a brilliant i wish you hadn't mentioned it because i i I only now that i remember just how much i want one (laughs) because um harris 
I don't know if you still got one. You certainly had one, didn't you? That's right. Uh, and I drove that a bit. In fact, I drove it a bit in... I think he brought it out to Spa one year, and I was knocking about going to and from the circuit in it. And it was just such a... It was just such an easy... Accept- That's the word. It's accessible, isn't it? It's got one of those cars. It's... I'm about to mention an A110. I'm so sorry. We won't but, do that. <laughs> Uh, but it is. It, it, it is just one of those cars that you get in and you're enjoying it before you're at the end of your street. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything. It's just a nice thing to be in because it's eager and compact. And uh, I can remember that drive I had in Scotland in that terrible weather. Um, and you think, well, rear drive, quite a lot of power. Um, it might be a bit tricky. And it wasn't. I can just remember thinking, being so comfortable and relaxed and happy and, you know, and, you know, skidding it about when, you know, it was. You know, it, it was simple and easy to do so, and otherwise just keeping it all within itself, and just feeling so at home in it. Just feeling that the car fitted me really well, and yeah, to, oh, I really want one now. <laughs> talking of skidding about, um, thanks to everyone who engaged with the, that discussion that was going on on Twitter oh, the, the other day discussion. about oversteer. Yes, and I, do you know, just reflecting on it now, I hope we were balanced in our in what we were saying about oversteer because the fact is, you and I do it a lot gladly and have fun doing it yeah so we didn't mean to belittle it entirely did we or say it's no and I, I, well I, I don't think i think if people actually listened to yeah. what we were saying we weren't in any way belittling oversteer or the skill or, or skill or anything like that um you know i like a car that will adopt that attitude easily in a way that is simple to recover when I want it to. I think the only thing that we sought to suggest was, you know, there's a big difference, isn't there, between a car which will naturally just sort of flow into a bit of oversteer and those incredible sort of bonfire shots that you get on the covers of motoring magazines, which have got, which have been done, where the car has been specifically provoked into doing something it is not naturally designed to do for the one and only purpose of creating that amazing image. And they are amazing images. And... You know, and some of the guys who can do those things in third, fourth gear corners at 18 hours and that, you know, hats off. It's an extraordinary talent. Um, The only question is how relevant making a car behave in that way is to to, to that car's, to the assessment of that car as a car that somebody else should or should not go out and buy. Um, And that was it. But it was interesting. It sparked a, you know, I think a good, strong debate with lots of people weighing in on both sides. Um, and yeah I mean I'm all for it and of course in, in how many of those magazine cover shots third fourth gear bonfiring the rear tyres how many of those have had BMW M cars in them I mean it's it's as though they're built for it isn't it uh, it's what they it's what they do best you've already mentioned the M5 CS yeah and of course that's one of the M cars that's, that, that has arrived since we did our previous M car podcast yes. two years ago so yes. I remember Seeing that car announced and thinking, what's the point? What's the point? Yeah, absolutely. I thought Close it was exactly to the same. 140 grand. Wasn't yeah, it? didn't have a proper rear bench, but two almost bucket seats in the back. Yeah, um, a little bit more here, a little bit more there. But you just wonder, what are they up to? What's what's this thing for? Yeah, I probably even wrote that, and then you drive it and you think, oh. <laughs> I took it down to we had our track day at Thruxton last year, um, and I hadn't been there for years, and I just happened to have it in, so I took it down there. And I just went and did a few laps, really early doors in it. And this big two-ton saloon, Thruxton, far circuit. Yeah. You'd expect it just to be completely out at sea. It wasn't. It was just, it was terrific. It was, it was so composed. And, and it's almost slightly frustrating because it shows they know how to do it. They know how to build a proper M car like that. And it wasn't as if there was a price to be paid in terms of the ride and refinement and it was a nightmare to get there. But it was lovely. Quiet, comfortable, you know, do what you like. And so it's almost like they know how to do it. But don't bother because ultimately they know that the sort of people who buy those sort of cars aren't that worried about it. What they appear to be more concerned with is the way the cars look. um, You know, just how much raw power they can develop how fast they can get done and and it's sort of bragging rights isn't it um and i just think it would be better for the brand all round if they paid just a little bit more attention to the values and the qualities that made m great in the first place 
And it certainly was never originally about straight line speed. Huge power. They weren't, you know, an E30 and 3 has got a 2.3 litre engine with 200 horsepower. You know, big deal. You know, much less power than a Golf GTI. And yet, that's the one we revere, isn't it? Um, and I just, I, I just wish they'd pay a bit more attention to that. And, and I think that they are. You know, you look at cars like, you know, everything from an M2 Comp to an M5 CS. Um, you know, that's BMW saying, yeah, we still, do, we still do understand that. We still do get that. We can still do that. I just wish they'd do it a bit more. Yeah. I, I felt like the M5 CS was actually more than the sum of its parts. You know, it's, it, it's, it, it's like it was BMW M's engineers flexing their muscles and just saying, when let off the leash, this is what we can do. This yeah. is how well we can tune and refine yeah. a performance saloon car. Yeah. Because the, the damping, the body control, and yet the way it will deal with bumps, the, the balance, the steering precision, all of that stuff is just so brilliantly done. Um, and it makes any other recent M5 just feel doughy. Does the well, yeah, the current M5, the previous one as well. Yeah, I get lost. I don't know about you, but I, I'm quite good at E numbers. Yeah, the moment you have F's and G's, I just, I just, you know, it just does not compute. There's yeah. just, there's just overload in here. But the previous M5, F10, I think. Yeah, that was a poor car. Mm. Very, very just, sloppy. Sloppy, heavy. but also tricky. Yeah, I can remember. You know, driving that in, you know, on roads that you just think, you know, you, you wouldn't think about twice about turning everything off and, you know, hoofing it about and just, ooh, blimey. Turn, I, I literally, I can remember there was one particular corner where it got, I think the phrase is, a bit large on me. And it was fine. But it was surprising. And I just thought, well, sod it. I'll turn them all back on again. Yeah. That's yeah. not what an M car should be for, should not it? Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Do you know what? While we're talking about M cars that have arrived in the last couple of years, we should just... Quickly do M3 and M4. Yeah. Um, I was not blown away by the M3 no. when it was new what, a year and a half ago or something. Yeah. Um, for one thing, I, I just don't like the way they look from the front end. So I, I hesitate to mention the grill because it's, it's they're it's very so colour. They are very colour dependent. Dark colour. And actually, the press cars are all, funny enough, all dark. Yeah. And you can't see the grill so much. Yeah. Yeah. And so dark colour does help, but I, I have other issues with it and. Okay, we have to acknowledge that the M3 has evolved. And now if you want a small, lightish um, M car, you're looking at an M2, aren't you? An M3 has evolved into... Or an M2, well, the new one, the M240, yeah. whatever it is, which I've got which coming is, in next week. Which is not light at all, actually. And that's something I wanted to say about the M3 and M4. They, they're more than 1,700 kilos now. And if you have a four-wheel drive one, it is 1,800 kilos. And then you get a wagon. So I yeah. reckon a, an M3... Touring with four-wheel drive, stick me in it. You've got a two-ton car in your hands. An M3. Yeah. Two-ton M3. Yeah. And you can only have a slush box. Yeah. They, so BMW UK don't import the standard ones. We only get the competitions. Exactly. And the standard and one, you can get a stick, can't you? You can get a stick. Um, but the auto is, a, it's, it is an automatic It's an automatic it's not, it's not a DCT. No. Um, and so I have some sort of philosophical reservations about the car um and i think for me they the ride quality is an issue particularly just in in normal sort of around town driving um but of course when you start really chucking it around on a good b road they're still good to drive they're still sharp still yeah but it rides like that because it's got all that mass to manage. And they have to, they have to and, give it those springs. And it has to, you know, to, just to keep the whole the thing from just sort of wandering off all by itself. They've got to tie it down. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not riding like that because that's sporting. I mean, that's, they're riding like that just to it's fixing a manage a problem they've introduced by making it so damn heavy. I remember going on the launch of the... Again, I can't remember the number, but the previous M4, so the first turbo M4 and M3, yeah. and they had um, they had a whole load of components spread out along a counter um, to demonstrate the lengths they'd gone to to take weight out of the car. Things like um, a hollow carbon prop shaft yeah. and all sorts of other things. And you could pick them up and go, goodness me, that's light. Yeah. I didn't hear any of that discussion, that conversation around the latest M3 and M4. And do we know how much heavier it is than the previous one? It's a good couple hundred kilos. It is, isn't it? I thought it was more. I thought it might even be two fifty, but it is. It's 
It's properly heavy now, isn't it? It's as though they've just gone, okay, it's going to be heavy, let's do what we can with it. Which is a shame. It doesn't seem like the M way at all. No, but maybe... I always sit here and you and I have these conversations and we have these conversations with our friends and as I have these conversations I'm always thinking we don't matter. Mm. We don't buy these cars. We are not who the... However much we would like to be the people that these cars are designed for if that were true they'd design them in a very different way. Um, They don't design these cars for us. There's an entire other constituency of people. People who actually put their hands in their pockets and, and pay money for these things and... They have different priorities. You know, BMW has been playing this game for long enough to know what works. And if what we wanted was what worked, they'd yeah. be doing that. Yeah. And they don't. So can you blame BMW for building the cars that its customers want? Probably not. Yes, but can enough. you and I sit here over a podcast and go, well, that's a shame. Yeah, but, but, but we're not expecting anyone to... You know, I don't think that there will be, you know, board meet, high level board meetings in Munich um, and anyone thinking, you know, that anything should change at all because they know exactly who they build their cars for. It's a business. Yeah. Ultimately, all car companies are. And so, yeah. And these are and, the realities. And, 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 you know, it's the 50th anniversary of that business. And I think the car they have created to celebrate that, you know, expresses their thoughts in this area particularly well. Yeah. But we'll be getting to that in a minute. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, so another M car that I had never driven before until this week, actually. Yeah. But it's an important one. E39 M5. I just, I don't know, really know, given it's such an important car, how it passed me by for so long. But I finally got to have a go in one this week. And I had a really good run out in it on roads that I know well nearby, my yeah. test route. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Uh Of course, it's great to drive, but it's the engine. I really loved that engine. 4.9 V8 NA, um, 400 horsepower, three-something pounds for the torque, 370 or something, I think. Not huge numbers. No. Not at all. No, but it doesn't need to because it's quite light. Yeah. And it clips along. When you drive it, well, A, it will pull a higher gear so well because it's got that barrel-chested torque that you yeah. get from a big V8. What's it rev to? I can't remember. Can you Seven. remember? Seven. So it pulls through the mid-range really hard, yeah. feels quick, yeah. but then it spins out with real energy to seven in a way that a Detroit V8, a, you know, a, a traditional Detroit V8 doesn't really want to. And it's, it's, such, it's so sweet. Um, not loud from the cabin. Not, I, I don't know what it sounds like from outside, but... But a lovely noise. Lovely noise, cultured. Proper, there's a V8 rumble, and then as you chase the red line, it just picks up into a, a slightly harder-edged kind of yowl. And it's, it's just such a sweet engine. But I, I was amazed at how noisy it wasn't, you know? And these days, we get these exhausts that have been tuned specifically for that purpose, and they make a lot of noise. Yeah. Um, and they pipe it into the cabin as well through the speakers Absolutely. or through a sound all, all that yeah and i just i actually really appreciated how sweet the sound was but how subtle it was as well um and it means you're you're not upsetting everyone around you or drawing attention to yourself um so fantastic engine lovely gearbox slick um really well defined gate so you're easily just sort of stirring your way through the gears um Steering was just sort of so-so. I mean, good enough that you can place the car, yeah. get a sense of the balance of the car, yeah. how hard it's working, but not super chattery. No. Um, and I loved, actually, how fluid the chassis was. You know, as you said, compared to a modern four-wheel drive M5, it's a good chunk lighter. And so it's, I suspect in the day, it probably felt, do you remember, did it feel fairly firm and uncompromising? I think it's probably... Compared to a four-wheel drive M5, it must be 400 kilos lighter. Yeah, I would have thought so. Which is almost a catering. What I remember about that car, and when I say that car, I think I mean the specific car yeah. you've been in. Because T400 BHP. Now, plates can move from car to car, but that car you've had, you said it's only done 22,000 miles? Yeah. And that suggests to me that that's a car which probably had quite a busy life as a press car and has been kept on the heritage fleet ever since, because if it had been sold, it would have done plenty of miles. And then BMW would have to have bought it back. So I suspect it's the same car. It's certainly the same colour inside and that. And we used to do a thing at Autocar. Um, <laughs> and having said all this stuff about oversteer, 
we used to do this thing at Autocar <laughs> yes. called the Sideways Challenge, where we every year we'd invite, invite a bunch of racing drivers and chassis engineers and rally drivers, and we'd go to a big circle somewhere with circles painted on it, and we'd soak the whole thing with a Bowser, and we'd get one car, and everybody would see if they could do an entire lap completely sideways, and we'd award points for degree of drift and accuracy and, and, and everything else. And we did this for years and years and years. And because I'm kind of okay at that, but not great, I always went, I'll tell you what, I'll be a judge. So I was, <laughs> I, I was always the bloke on the white, in the white coat at the sort of, on the outside of the circle, making learned notes with a pencil stuck behind my own clipboard. Um, but of course, you'd always go and have a go. Um, and, and all of all the cars that we did that in, and please don't ask me to name them because there were plenty. What I do remember is that E39 and M5. The car you've got parked out there. To me, that was the, that was the easiest. That was the most successful. That was the car that I felt that I could get into, go sideways at quite a high speed, and then once sideways, not just hold it, but direct it. Yeah. And if it was because we had this line, and the idea was you park the inside front wheel on that line, and then you just slide around the whole. And it was kind of like a third gear thing. So it was a big wide pad, and um, and if I felt myself sort of drifting out a little bit or drifting in, I felt that I could adjust the car to keep it on that thing. And, you know, and, and if me, as somebody who doesn't necessarily rate themselves particularly in that regard, was happy doing that, then I think that said an awful lot about the inherent balance of that car. I, you know, I, funny enough, of, of everything, that's what I remember most about it. I just remember feeling probably... Oh, I can't offhand think of any car that I felt more at home in with a really, really big slip angle on. Was that when you had Lewis there? Well, I don't know. I think it might have been. I know there was. Lewis did come to one, um, and I think he was 15 at the time. So we could probably work it out. How old is Lewis now? 37, I think. 37. So this was 22 years ago. So 2000. Does that fit? Yeah. Okay. So it probably was. Yeah. And... I don't think he'd ever driven a car like that before. I think someone said, oh, he's never driven a car. I can't believe that's true. But he came along, um, this young lad who was a sort of a bit of a hot shot in carts and that sort of thing. Um, and I remember, I remember a few things about it. I remember being very quiet, but extremely polite. He, won't remember, he might remember this, actually. I don't know, but he, not that he listened to this, but if anybody who is listening to this knows, Lewis, yeah. could you just go and ask him, ask him <laughs> if he remembers doing the auto car sideways challenge and then find a way of getting hold of us and letting us know. But I remember being very quiet, very polite, and I also remember him being not very good at it. Mm. Nor would anybody be if they're 15 years old and never driven a car like that in their life, let alone driven it like that. But what I do remember, and what we all talked about, was that once everybody else had gone, he stayed behind. And he went, get another go. And he just tried, and then he got better and better and better at it. And I just thought that was really... He didn't just sort of turn... Because, you know, if you're a normal 15-year-old kid, you turn up to try to do something and you're not very good at it, and there are lots of people around you who are very good at it, you kind of think, well, like, if it would be me, I just wanted to go and run and hide somewhere. Like, well, I'd want to be anywhere in the world. But he didn't. He just hung around for the rest of the day and thought, mm, okay, I clearly need to get a bit better at this. And I just thought Fantastic. it was really instructive. Do you know how that came about? Did someone just say, oh, we should have a hotshot young carter there? Don't know. But there'll be somebody who was on autocar at the time who was organising it. Someone like Steve Sutcliffe um, will know. will know how he got Lewis there. Um, but of course, we had no idea at the time. But um, but it's interesting that you know I, I remember this kid, um, and then when he obviously got to Formula One, became famous. Uh, I, I immediately made the connection uh, because he just stayed in my mind because of the way that he carried himself that day. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I know you've driven another M car. Is this actually an M car? The M six three five CSI. We don't need to do lots on this. Don't call it an M6. Mm. Uh, yeah, it is. It is. I'll, t- I'll tell you why it's an M car. It's an M car because, okay, forget the name. You know, you could call it a budgery car. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Okay? It's got that engine in it. It's got the, the 3.5 litre, 286 horsepower, twin cam, 24 valve, straight six donkey. It's an M car. <laughs> every car in the world that ever had that engine in it was an M car. Yeah. Okay? If it didn't have that engine, if it just had the, the single cam engine... Now, the, an interesting question, which I know you're about to ask me, was whether the earlier car, the M535i, yeah. which didn't have that engine in it, but did have an M badge, is that an M car? 
See, that was the second car they made. They, they made the M1 yeah. in 1978, whenever it was. And then I think in 79 or 80, they made the M535i. Uh, and that's a more difficult ask because that was just a slightly tuned up 5 Series. Whereas the M635 CSI was a proper job. Um, anyway, um, M635 CSI, yeah, I just love them. I just, I just, <laughs> I once got the opportunity to drive one of those really fast in an emergency. Fantastic. <laughs> um, because my father had one and we had a we lived in Jersey, um, which is a terrible place to drive cars. So he had this tiny little cottage just across the water in Brittany. Um, and he always had you know, quite a fast car there which he could then go roaming around Europe in. And the M635 CSI was that car. Um, and I was there one weekend with some mates. Um, and we were chopping some wood, and one of them managed to split the handle of the axe and bury it in his hand. Ugh. And we were in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, and he was, I mean, he's a cool dude. He, was, he, he thought it was almost amusing, but he did accept he was bleeding, bleeding profusely <laughs> and really wasn't quite urgent need of, um, of medical attention. And we, well, none of us could speak French. We didn't even know what 999 was in France. And by the time, you know, the ambulance had got to us, he probably lost half his blood volume. So we thought, well, we better take him to the hospital. Well, what are we going to take? So we had the 2CV. Well, that wasn't <laughs> yeah. going to work. And we'd wrapped his, his, his hand in plastic bags um, and then put um, elastic bands around them. So you had plastic band, elastic band. And so his was all like this. Uh, and I thought, well, I better take, I better, I better take the BM. And I can just remember thinking, it doesn't matter if I get stopped. I've got the perfect excuse because yeah. he'd just whip off the back and there'd be blood everywhere. Um, and so I drove this thing into town, which was about, I don't know, 15 miles away. It was one of the best drives of my life. It was just <laughs> superb. I was absolutely rinsing this thing. Um, and I was, I don't know what I was, I was probably 20 at the time, something like that. And it was just, it was just, it was just all the fun in the world. And I had the perfect excuse. I didn't even feel just how liberating this was to be able to drive like a total idiot with the perfect excuse. Um, so thank you, Alexis. I, um, <laughs> I hope I, your hands I, I okay. I appreciate that. I, I know his hand was fine, but he's still got the scar to this day. But um, yeah, that was great. Well, yeah, but if he didn't have the BMW there and it was just the 2CV, it could have been a lot worse for him, couldn't it? Yeah, yes. Yeah, That's absolutely. Thinking about. I, can't, I can't remember. He had, the, the, the car had the optional buffalo hide seats and just I was quite keen not to... Hand out the window, redecorate them with <laughs> my mate's blood. Um, but no, that was an absolutely cracking drive. Okay, that's enough looking back. Let's look forward um, just for a couple of minutes. The future of M. Yeah. Immediate future, I mean. We're not looking yeah. a long way down the line. Later this year, we'll see the new M2, yeah. which is an exciting car because the previous one, the outgoing one, is so much fun to drive. Yeah. And right in that heartland of you know what we want an M car to be. Yeah. Um, so we hope this new one isn't a great deal heavier. Sadly, M cars do seem to be getting quite corpulent. We hope this one isn't too chunky. Um, we reckon it'll have 400 horsepower. We think it will be rear-wheel drive, um, manual and paddles probably. Um, but that, that is going to be a very interesting car, isn't it? If they can keep on top of the weight, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a lot of faith because you know, all those little cars, be it you know, an old E30 or a, you know, a 1M um, or the previous M2 car, they haven't done a bad one. That, and that, to yeah. me, is where the true heart of M lies. Yeah. And I've got this M240i coming in next week, and that will give us a, a good indication of... You know, because you know, a 140, what are they called? Is it an M140i? 140i, M135, there was a 140, wasn't there? I mean, they were good cars, even though they weren't proper M cars. Um, and so, you know, I have quite high hopes for this. And yeah, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, they've got the benefit of the doubt because they haven't messed that one up yet. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, just to balance out that one, Heartland M car to <sighs> this one that we've mentioned already. This is the Concept XM um, this We're is not talking about a, a Citroen. Citroen. <laughs> and this is, this is the concept that BMW unveiled last year. It's a huge SUV. Um, a very, let's be generous here, a very bold looking machine. Should we say? Enormous grill. Challenging? Challenging. Styling? We can say challenging. Courageous? <laughs> Anything you like, really. Um, and this is the car that BMW M have 
developed and it will go into production later this year to mark its own 50th anniversary. Yeah. It's only the second M-specific car. After the first. After the first, the M1. Yeah. Um, it's a hybrid, so it's got a twin-turbo V8 with um, a hybrid and a big battery, so it'll do 50 miles in electric only. Yeah. 750 horsepower, so it is the most powerful M car. Yeah. Um, M's first hybrid. Yeah. And I just couldn't care less about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. It, uh, just, it just seems a shame to me that this is the way the direction BMW M has decided to go to celebrate its own 50th. But it's a shame to you and it's a shame to me, but it's yeah. probably not a shame to BMW customers. And I don't wish to, I'm not sitting here saying we're right and they're wrong at all. You know, there are no rights and wrongs with taste and, you know, what our personal preferences are. It's just different. And that is so far removed from what, well, we'll wait till we drive it. You can't prejudge these things. But in everything that I've seen, it is so far removed from what my idea of an M car is. Um, I think it's a shame. But, you know, they're, they're clever guys. And, you know, maybe they do, well, sure, they do understand exactly who it's aimed at. And, you know... And it's not us, and that's you know that's our problem, not theirs. I suppose as much as anything, it's a comment on the state of the the car industry now and how SUV centric it has become. Because that it seems is what buyers want. Yeah. Um, and if you're a car manufacturer, you're going to lean into that, aren't you? So it's their Urus, isn't it? It's their yeah. DBX. It's you know that's what it's after, isn't it? It wants a slicer, and and that I completely understand purely commercial terms. Um, you know, the form book says you can sell a lot of them and you can, and you make a big fat margin on every one of them. Um, which is what everybody seeks, isn't it? Because tradition says that you can either make a very small margin on a large number of cars or vice versa, but not both. Um, and yet those super luxury SUVs are the cars that do both. So I completely understand why in cold commercial terms they decide to go down that road. Um, and the thing is, is that the irony is that, you know, the more you and I bang on about, you know, the good old days and all this nostalgic nonsense um, and E30s and, you know, E46s and so on, we are reaffirming, aren't we? We're still talking about M and, 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 and because we're still talk, talking about that and we're talking about M, they still derive a benefit from it today. Um, and so we keep those names alive. And the modern cars, you know, continue to bathe in their reflected glory. Um, and actually, you know, so long as they do continue to knock out, you know, M2s that have been as good as the M2s have been, um, so long as there's still something today, it's like Porsche, isn't it? You know, we don't mind how many Cayennes and Macans Porsche make as long as they still make, you know, 911s in general and, you know, GT3s in particular. And as long as BMW still makes something which is true in a modern context to um, the original values of M, I think that they will be able to perpetuate this sense of authenticity uh, and legitimacy um, almost regardless of what else they make on top. Yeah, there you go. So we'll see the, the XM in production, guys, later this year. Yeah. Um, and I suppose all that's left to be said about BMW M is happy 50th birthday. Happy 50th birthday. Big benchmark, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Well, we've got the listener question coming up. Goody, goody. Um, before we do that, JBR Capital, thank you, as ever, for sponsoring the podcast. Um, if you're looking to buy a new or used car, any type of car, um, just go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side, and you'll find contact details in the description beneath. Please rate and review the podcast. Please subscribe or follow wherever you um, listen to the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button now. That helps us a lot. Thank you. Um, listen to question then from David Schultz. Ooh, hang on. I might have seen it. Oh, it's, okay. a, it's a longish one. Is it? During my lifetime, I'm roughly Andrew's age, there have been only four real rear-engined sports cars. Okay. Um, now, I don't know, some people might dispute that number, but for the, for the purposes of this question, we'll accept it as truth. Um, one, the Fiat 850 Spider, the original Alpine A110 and A310, he says, the DeLorean, and the 911. What about the current A110? 
Oh, rear end. Rear Sorry, end. Rear end. And what about okay? What about the A six ten? Well, that's right. So other Alpines, I suppose. Um, but he says that's a pretty stellar record, the four that he's mentioned there. Yeah. So why aren't there more? It's a very good question. It's a very good question. Uh, what's the answer? I suppose that there is there is something of the nine eleven in this, isn't there? There is something of the sense of having an engine mounted behind the rear axle is the wrong place for the engine. And that creates a car with curious handling characteristics, um, maybe undesirable handling characteristics. Um, I've always thought it's a fantastic place to have an engine because, A, I think those stories are wildly overblown and have certainly been conquered by modern engineering. Um, B, they allow a car to have uh, rear seats, unlike a mid-engine car, um, they allow a car to have um, very light springs at the front, so they tend to ride very well and steer very nicely, and you get the traction. Wonderful rear-engine traction. So um, I think there should have been many more um, rear-engine cars. Um, and I, I don't really know why there haven't been more, other than to say that they, it is a slightly stigmatised layout. And I also think it is such an iconic Porsche layout. Yeah. I think that anybody who did another one, everybody else would just think, well, you're just copying Porsche. Um, and it's just one of those things that's become so much their territory that it's almost that nobody else can go there. Um, so that's my... What about a Tucker Torpedo? <laughs> <laughs> that was rear engine. Okay, he said in our lifetimes. Okay, that was before our lifetimes. So, okay. Also sports cars. Okay, also still... Okay, fine, fine, fine. Uh, yeah, and so that probably rules out the core there as well. Okay, no, I mean, yes, it, it, is, it is a very interesting question yeah. to which I don't have... Um, a definitive answer okay but, but on the face of it you look at how the 911 outsells every other car in, in that category and yeah. adjacent categories and yeah. think well why hasn't anyone else done this um, and I suppose the answer is because you're then taking on the 911 head on I think it's the same thing as the MX-5 why has no one else yeah. done an MX-5 or people have tried you know the, the last MR2 Fiat Barchetta that sort of thing but yeah. they've all tried and they've all given up I think certain cars do it so well yeah. and they become and I can use it this time iconic um, that they become almost inviolate and unapproachable and you don't just go there because you're never you're always going to be compared to it and you're almost certainly never going to do it as well there you go that's my answer thank you David Schultz for your question thank you David please get questions in because it's a lovely way to end each episode yeah um, so email us or send us a message on Instagram however you want to get your question across but be creative like David was um, so thank you all for listening and we'll be back same time next week. Look forward to it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.